Um, so yeah, I'm just going to Pam Baird is she's on the admin team with Sarah Gamage and myself. So, um, she graciously, um, agreed to teach us this year. So I'm going to pray for her and we'll jump in. Oh, Lord, I do thank you so much for this sister and just her faithful service to our church for so, so many years. And, um, yeah, the way that she just encourages Sarah and I uh, on the admin team as well. We're so grateful to be a team together. Lord, I just ask for you to to bless her this morning, to encourage her, for her eyes to be fixed on you, um, the author of her salvation, and for you to be the one who does good work through her. Thanks in your name. Amen. Yes, this this is the tricky part, is finding the sweet spot on the shirt. <laughs> Can you hear me? This doesn't sound like, oh, it's on now. Yeah, but it's just when it's down here. Okay, is it is the volume up all the way? I might turn it up once you turn it Okay. Okay. How's that? Pretty good. Testing, testing. I have a loud voice, so okay. I can yeah. always increase my my volume. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know about you, but our study of First Samuel this year has just blown me away. David's experiences have been echoes of our own experiences of sin and repentance, of joy and suffering, of fear and faith. As we near the end of 1 Samuel, David's outlaw days are coming to an end. It has been about 15 years since Samuel has privately anointed David to be king. God has been preparing and perfecting King David. As I immersed myself myself in chapters 29 and 30, read the commentaries, prayed, and listened to God, the word irony kept coming to mind. The events of these two chapters had unexpected results. The dictionary defines irony as a combination of circumstances that is the opposite of what might be expected. Joni Erickson Tata writes about God's display of irony in her own life. She says, God specializes in irony. Irony. I was reminded of that when I was invited to speak at Billy Graham's mission in Moscow in 1992. Can you imagine 30 years ago in Moscow? It was a Sunday afternoon at the Olympic Stadium. Ken, her husband, and I, along with my Russian interpreter, were seated on the front row of the mission platform. We watched as 70,000 people tried to enter the 35,000-seat stadium to hear the gospel. My interpreter, a young blind student named Oleg, was able to grasp it all as I leaned over and described to him the incredible scene before us. People were crammed shoulder to shoulder in the aisles and on the stairs. He couldn't see, but he felt the excitement. Just before I moved to the microphone, Oleg said said to me, I can hardly believe that God picked you, a woman who is paralyzed, and me, a young man who is blind, to give his gospel to my countrymen in this stadium. It's amazing. Joni recounts this story and says more than that, it was ironic. Oh, the irony of God that he would choose to to voice his message to a nation, not through the powerful or mighty, 
but through a most unlikely twosome, a woman who is paralyzed and a young man who is blind. God specializes in irony, always choosing a combination of circumstances opposite to one what one might expect in order that his will, will would be done. My outline consists of four ironies of God. The irony of God's providence in chapter 29. The irony of God's protection in chapter 30, 1 through 20. The irony of God's provision, chapter 30, verses 21 to 25. And the irony of God's purpose, chapter 30, verses 26 to 31. The irony of God's providence. In chapter 27, David had joined forces with the Philistines through Philistine army through Achish, king of Gath, in order to find protection from Saul. Achish has been happy for David and his mercenary men of 600 to bring him booty and plunder. David has been deceiving Achish and has been intentionally fighting non-Israelite peoples. David was not necessarily trusting in God's providence when he offered his services to Achish. In attaching himself to the Philistine army, David finds himself between a rock and a hard place. Because in chapter 29, the narrative resumes with the Philistines gathering all their forces at Aphek to fight against Saul and his army. And Achish, along with David's men, have been summoned to join the main Philistine army in the north for the battle. Until now, David has had many opportunities to kill Saul. Each time, David trusted in God's sovereign choice of Saul as king and waited patiently on his Lord to fulfill his promise to make David the future king. David's decision was not a faith-filled decision, and he finds himself in quite the dilemma. Isn't it ironic? As they parade before the mighty Philistine commanders, David and his men are found out. Verse 3, what are these Hebrews doing here? The Philistine commanders do not trust that David and his men will not turn against them on the battlefield. Can you blame them? They were right to have trust issues. If you recall back in chapter 14, verse 21, in a previous battle against Saul, the Philistines had allowed some Hebrews to join their army only to have them turn against them in battle. After all, David did kill Goliath, a Philistine, and a song is even written about David slaying tens of thousands. So they order David and his men to go back to the place he and his family were was given to reside, the city of Ziklag in the south. God, through his providence, has orchestrated events to provide David a way of escape even though David had not sought the Lord when he decided to join the Philistine army. At this news, probably in order to save face for Achish, David feigns disappointment and displeasure. The ironic providence of God. God turns enemies into saviors. God has provided a way for David to get out of his jam. He was released from his commitment to Achish and the Philistine army. Quite frankly, I was kind of surprised that the Philistine commanders didn't execute them. 
My guess is that Achish's strong defense of David, as well as the plunder he brought to the Philistine army, were two good reasons. David was advised to leave at first light. Can you see the ironies of this scene? Commentator Robert Bergen notes, Saul considered David his mortal enemy. Yet David was, in fact, Saul's most loyal subject. Achish considered David his most trusted subject. Yet David was, in fact, Achish's most dangerous enemy. Three times Achish defends David. All the while, it was absolute deception on David's part. The deceived defends his deceiver. And for all that David uh, Saul put David through, David never raised a hand against him. In fact, in the coming chapter, sorry, Ellen Kay, for the spoiler alert, when Saul is killed, David and his men were 100 miles south, killing Amalekites, fulfilling God's command to kill the Amalekites, to kill all the Amalekites, excuse me, the same command that Saul had ignored and disobeyed back in chapter 15. Robert Bergen goes on to summarize. The events of this chapter must be viewed as the providential supply of an alibi, excusing David from any involvement in the death of King Saul. What are the lessons for us in this chapter? Do you ever make plans without first consulting God? I know I do all the time. I rely on my own wisdom, intuition, and understanding without first going to God in prayer. Do you ever tell half-truths in order to preserve or protect your own image? Are you avoiding a relationship or situation that God wants you to face? What are your escape mechanisms? Beth Ann Olson reminded us that it is tempting to put David on a pedestal. Take heart, David was a man after God's own heart and found himself victim of his own folly. The good news is God did not abandon David and he does not abandon us. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland writes, if you are in Christ, your waywardness does not threaten your place in the love of God any more than history itself can be undone. Never fear that God's mercy cannot find you in your Philistine territory. God's loving providence can find us and redeem us no matter what or where we try to, to run. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The irony of God's protection. <clears throat> the narrative continues in chapter 30. They were ordered to leave at first light. David and his men had a long three-day trek south back to Ziklag. What do you think David was thinking and feeling on the long march home? Happy at the prospect of being reunited with his two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail and his children? Relieved that God had gotten him out of his jam? Ashamed that he didn't trust God in the first place? Prideful that he had been rejected by the Philistine commanders? Uncertain of his future? If it was me, 
I know I would have had all these thoughts and feelings running through my heart and mind. Over the hill they walk and see smoke on the horizon. The city of Ziklag had been raided and burned with fire. Let's pause here and imagine this scene. Other than the fact that there were no dead bodies, David and his men did not know whether their wives and children were dead or alive. They didn't know who had done this. It was a practice at the time to take captives and sell them as slaves, which was actually a fate probably far worse than death. But David didn't know that for certain. The Amalekites had raided Ziklag, burned it, and had taken captive everyone, both young and old. Isn't it ironic? The Amalekites, who were known for their brutality, had killed none of them. Yet David, on most of his raids in chapter 27, left no one alive. Verse 4 says, They wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep no more strength, depleted. Everything they owned and all of their families were gone and they did not know if they would ever see them again. Just when you think things can't get any worse, they do. Verse six says, David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his own sons and daughters. 600 men raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Bitterness mixed with sadness. David, the man who had led them into the land of the Philistines. David, who had managed to get them their own city to settle their families. David, who had been victorious in all his military battles. David, who had provided for these men with food, shelter, and safety. David was their hero and their champion. They followed him, and now they are ready to stone him to death. David has had some pretty low points during the last 15 years, but this was probably his lowest point ever. I recently had a Ziklag experience. I was called by God to care for my 93-year-old father who has severe dementia. He and my mom live five hours away in Rhode Island, in the house where I grew up. My dad's primary caregiver is my brother-in-law, who had a total knee replacement and was out of commission for some weeks. So for four weeks in February and March, I stayed with my parents and was their primary caregiver. Now, I know that raising and caring for young children is exhausting. We heard from Helen and Bethann. I don't want to discount those feelings. They are very real. And I raised four children of my own. But there is a certain hopefulness in the future. Knowing your children will get older, will eventually mature and care for their own needs and grow up to be responsible adults. I know some of you might question that who has teenage boys. (laughs) But with my dad, I had a profound sense of sadness in caring for him that I couldn't shake. The one strong man who had fed me, I was feeding. The one who had dressed me, I was dressing. The one who had helped me walk, I was helping walk. 
the one who had changed my diapers. I was changing his diapers. I was also watching a baby monitor every night because he had been trying to climb out of bed. I was physically, emotionally, and spiritually depleted. I had no resources of my own and no hope that my dad's situation was going to improve, but instead only get worse. What does the text say that David does in his Ziklag moment? But David strengthened himself in the Lord. What does it mean here to strengthen oneself? Strengthening oneself isn't an absence of tears. It isn't an absence of fear. It isn't an absence of sorrow. Strengthening oneself is practicing a lifetime of habits of turning to God in the midst of these feelings. Taking captive every thought to obey Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5 These lifetime habits reveal themselves when we are under fire. David's strength came not from a God or the God, but his God. The strength comes from the relationship. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Our strength comes from believing that God loves you, sees you, and hears you. Our strength comes from trusting God's character of faithfulness, goodness, mercy, and grace. Our strength comes from remembering his promises to never leave you or forsake you. This relational habit of turning to God was displayed over and over again in many of the Psalms that David wrote. Psalm 18:6, in my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. Psalm 34, 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me. Psalm 41, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. As I journeyed through my Ziklag experience, they were very long days, and I honestly didn't have time in the morning for a devotional to strengthen me. But I recalled one of the women in my small group, and I won't mention her name because she wouldn't want me to, and she knows who she is. She said to me, sometimes in her weakest days, she finds herself just talking to God out loud all day long. I found that to be a great encouragement to me, and that is what I did. It was a very relational time with the Lord. Isn't it ironic that when you feel you are at your weakest moments in life is when you feel the most intimate with God? Last week, Saul sought help from a medium and received the promise of death. This week, David seeks help from the priest and receives the promise of life. He calls for Abiathar, the priest, to bring the ephod. Verse 8, and David inquired of the Lord. Yay for David. Doesn't it make you just want to cheer? Faith resumed. Bad decisions redeemed. David asks, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And the Lord answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and you shall surely rescue. The word rescue. Did you catch that last word? Isn't it ironic 
what started off as a recovery mission suddenly became a rescue mission. There was hope. God had protected their families after all. Can you just imagine 600 men getting up off their knees, wiping their tears, picking up their swords, ready to follow their leader once more? Renewed by the hope of God's word, they set off to pursue their families. However, they come to a deep ravine and 200 of the men were just too exhausted to continue, which I'll get back to. It is so hard to trust God in the middle of a zigzag experience. It's so hard to say to yourself, God, I know you will provide. I know you will give me the energy I need. I know you will give me wisdom in this this situation. Did David take the faith-filled path every time? We know from our study this year, he did not. Will we take the faithful path every time? Rest assured, we will not. But we can continue to strengthen ourselves in our Lord by maintaining the habits we already have and developing new ones. We don't have a priest on speed dial, but we have Hebrews 4.16, which says that we have a high priest that allows us with confidence to draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We may not have an ephod in our jewelry box, but we do have the word of God written or memorized. We have Christian music and we have sisters in Christ to hold us up in prayer when we cannot pray for ourselves. Hugh, thank you to my small group. The irony of God's protection doesn't end here. David didn't know for certain it was the Amalekites who had raided Ziklag, and he didn't know what direction to go in to pursue. He was just being obedient to God to pursue. Our text tells us in verse 11, they found an Egyptian in the open country. This man was half dead. David could not have, could have overlooked him and continued on his way, but instead He shows amazing kindness and graciousness in echoes of the Good Samaritan. This is an obedience to the Torah in the treatment of aliens, particularly Egyptians, from Exodus 22, 11. After the Egyptian receives food and drink, only then does David question him. Not only is this Egyptian an alien, but it turns out he was an Amalekite slave who was present during the raid on Ziklag. Isn't it ironic? God uses the lowest of the low to help the future king of Israel. With some assurances for safety, the Egyptian slave provides information and assistance that enabled David and his men to see the fulfillment of the Lord's promise from verse 8. They are led down to the Amalekite camp where the men are drinking and reveling over their conquests. David and his 400 men attack and fight them from dusk until evening the next day. It was a resounding victory for two reasons. Number one, the Amalekites were all but wiped off the face of the earth. The thing which Saul was ordered to do by God back in chapter 15, but failed to do, David did. So much so that they are not mentioned again as an opponent of Israel for 300 years in the time of Hezekiah. 
Secondly, David and his men recovered all that the Amalekites had taken from them personally. In verse 19 says, nothing was missing. But they also recovered goods and livestock the Amalekites raided from other tribes in the nearby region, namely the Carathites, Calebites, and other Judahites. Not every Ziklag experience has a happy ending. The career you had imagined for yourself never came to fruition. The wayward adult children do not come back to faith. The cancer is not healed. The children you poured your heart and soul into do not choose to follow Christ. Perhaps you are walking through a Ziklag experience right now. Our hope doesn't necessarily come in the resolution of our circumstances. Our hope comes from placing our faith and trust in the one who is faithful and trustworthy. Our hope comes from aligning our will with God's will, no matter the outcome. The song Hills and Valleys by Torin Wells has been echoing through my mind as I've been studying this passage and experiencing my own Ziklag time. It goes like this, and I'm not going to sing it. (laughs) On the mountains, I will bow my life to the one who set me there. In the valley, I will lift my eyes to the one who sees me there. When I'm standing on the mountain, I didn't get there on my own. When I'm walking through the valley, I know I am not alone. You are the God of the hills and valleys, hills and valleys, God of the hills and valleys, and I am not alone. And the refrain says, Father, you give and take away every joy and every pain. Through it all, you will remain over it all. David followed God to Ziglag, followed God to the open country, followed God into battle, and followed God back to his 200 men, who David had not forgotten, as we will see in this next section. The irony of God's provision. David returns to his 200 men, who had been too exhausted to make the trip up out of the Besor ravine. How must those 200 men have felt? How would they be received by their leader? Much to their relief, David greets them warmly. He did not rebuke them or deride them for having the energy to participate in the raid on the Amalekites. They did the thing they were required to do at that particular time, rest and recover and keep watch over the supplies. However, not all David's men agreed with his leadership 101 style. There were evil men and troublemakers among David's followers. David followed several godly principles while navigating his response to these men. First, that it was the strength of the Lord and not their own that gave them the victory. Verse 23, he protected us and handed over to us the forces that came against us. Therefore, it all belonged to God. And secondly, we are all equal in God's eyes. Therefore, the plunder should be shared equally by all. This brings up such an important principle in God's kingdom. David's response is how God sees all of us. No one is more important than the other. 
Every job done for the glory of God is valued. He uses soldiers as well as shepherds. Charles Charles Spurgeon said about those who stayed behind, this kind of service, which seems most commonplace among men, is often the most precious to God. When I was at my parents' last month, there was a particular day after lunch when I had just put my dad to bed for his nap. My husband, Jim, was sitting at the kitchen table with my mom, and he was tenderly encouraging her with a testimony about God's faithfulness in his own life. I was in the bathroom emptying my dad's commode, and as it turned out, my mother had had a toileting toileting accident that morning. My mother is legally blind, so I was certain she did not realize the mess she had left behind. In my fatigue, I'm ashamed to admit that I became resentful that Jim was doing what I saw as the better thing in the kitchen with my mom. While I was alone cleaning the toilet and the bathroom floor, God met me in a very real way in that moment. I felt his hand on my shoulder reminding me that he was with me, he saw me, and that what I was doing mattered to him just as much as what Jim was doing. God loves you right where you are. You are a good and faithful servant. His reward is equal. He provides for all. Do you struggle with with believing that where you are in life and what you are doing matters to God? Don't compare yourself to others. He uses soldiers as well as shepherds. The irony of God's purpose. In stark contrast to the previous conquests of chapter 27, wherein David was basically acting as a mercenary for Achish, David has realigned himself in right relationship with the Lord. He has still taken plunder, but he has taken it under the direction of God's will and plan, and purpose. David's actions were not vengeance, but rather an act of spiritual obedience. He arrives back in Ziklag and wisely decides to share the plunder with the surrounding settlements scattered around southern Judah. Verse 26 tells us they were his friends. Presumably, they helped him during his many years of roaming this region while hiding out from Saul. The largest and most significant of the places listed is Hebron, which was a center for the Aaronic priesthood and a designated city of refuge noted in Joshua 20, verse 7. So presumably these gifts are offered not only as a tithe, but also serve to ingratiate himself as their future king. Isn't it ironic? This chapter begins in tragedy and ends in triumph. We've looked at the irony of how God's providence used the enemy to set David free in chapter 29. The irony of how God protected David and his men using the least of the least to result in the greatest victory. The irony of how God provided for the weakest men with plunder. But the greatest irony of all is found in his purpose. G.K. Beale wrote a book entitled, Redemptive Reversals and the Ironic Overturning of Human Wisdom. He says, God has used irony throughout history 
in order to put his wisdom and glory on display, using what is weak and foolish to accomplish his purposes. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 28. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. The greatest example of irony in the Bible is found at the cross. At the cross, it looks like Jesus is being cursed, but he is being blessed. At the cross, it looks like Jesus is weak, but he is strong. At the cross, it looks like Jesus has lost control, but he is in complete control. At the cross, it looks like Jesus is being defeated, but he's winning a victory. At the cross, Jesus dies, but ultimately he lives. God's victory here in chapter 30 gives us hope, for it is both a preview and a pledge of the final victory we have in Christ. Christ, our living hope. First Peter 1.3 According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Rebecca Pippert's commentary, A Heart for God, summarizes this hope we have. She says, Christians, therefore, are people of hope and not despair. We know that God had the first word and will also have the last. We know that God will take our difficulties and weave them into purposes we cannot yet see. And when he is done, the day will be more glorious for our having gone through the difficulties. As we look toward Easter, let us remember Hebrews 12.2. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a trustworthy God, faithful in all your promises to us through Christ Jesus. I pray that your word to us through these scripture passages today would speak to us and remind us of your love, your care, your provision, and your protection. Be with each woman here as they meet in their small groups Please send your spirit to encourage and guide them into a deeper relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.